Hello, students of Theo oh. 102. Oh, hello. Welcome to the Need to Know More I podcast. I feel like speaking in a high voice today. <laughs> That's lovely. Lovely. It's opposite day. Okay. Welcome to the Need to Know More podcast renewal. We are talking about- It's a nice word. What a great word. Renewal. Yeah. We could have used another word that gets used sometimes. We could have said counter-reformation. Is that one word? Um, well, yes, it's hyphenated, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. But- we're talking about renewal, renewal now in the Roman Catholic Church in the like modern it. era. I'm excited. So, question. Yes. The Reformation happens. Yep. And the kind of simplistic picture one may have in their mind, a non-college educated student, let's say. Not that <laughs> there's right. anything wrong with that. Nope. Just but, that. Nope. But after this class, you're going to know different. After this class, you know different. Would yep. be that. Okay. So, the Catholic Church was really vibrant and real. It was just the church. Everyone was meeting in houses and doing their thing. And the apostle Peter's running around and da da da. But then there started to be all these kinds of rules. With Constantine. Lots of legalism and rules. And basically Martin Luther broke out and created like this vibrant new thing. And then the Catholic church was just still like, well, I guess we go back to our rules and we never change because that's what we do. Right. Right. But (laughs) is that, is that a is that a fair picture of what happened? Well, what a great intro question. No, it's definitely not. You know, my one of my favorite metaphors for the church is a family. Like the church is a family, which is definitely something that the scriptures talk about. Like we when we get into this thing, we become brothers and sisters with one another. Mm-hmm. Jesus is our brother and God is our father, that kind of thing. Um and so if you think about like the last time your family had big family drama, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's a cousin who's mad at a cousin or an aunt or something. Literally every day. Right? Most families have some sort of family drama. And if you hear the story from one side of the family versus the other side of the family, you get a completely different portrait of what is happening. And so- It's been known to happen. Yeah. And so if you grow up in the Protestant tradition, there's a fairly good chance that you'll get the story that you just described- some version um, of that. Some version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that is not the entire picture because you're really hearing from one one form of the family versus another. So for a long time, um, people that were from the Protestant tradition would tell a story that was like that. But the Roman Catholic Church was basically, they were living in the same time that the reform <laughs> movements were happening. And, they, and really all Christians in this era we're trying to respond to the challenge of the modern world. The whole world, I mentioned in the lecture, the whole world had changed and um, like modes of transportation and economics and culture and language and mm-hmm. national boundaries and all these things had changed. Um, and so Christians were trying to figure out how to love God and love their neighbors in this moment of upheaval. Mm-hmm. So when we think about what's happening in the Roman Catholic church, we should think about, um, it was also a movement in transition Mm -hmm. as well. So Martin Luther gets a lot of press in part because, I mean, obviously very influential, but also because he's just kind of a cantankerous fun personality. Um, but, but there were lots of other movers and shakers going on, um, in the Roman Catholic church as well. So one way that that church history is often defined is by councils. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about some yes, of these church councils right. early on, but those councils continued and, and could even continue up to this day in a sense for Catholics who have the authority to call a council. But there was a council. I'm at least, I'm a church historian enough, which is barely <laughs> yes. at all, to at least vaguely know that there was this thing called the Council of Trent that seems to have happened basically starting almost like, it looks like almost like right after Martin Luther died. 
that went mm-hmm. on for like 20 years. So this wasn't like a single, like a three day no, convention. No, this yeah. is like a thing that goes on and on, but they must have done. So coming on the wake of the Protestant fractures, mm-hmm. this must have been a pretty serious moment for the Catholic, for what then became, you'd have to really define as the Catholic church as like a branch of Christianity, the Roman Catholic, the Roman church. Catholic yeah. church. Yeah. When they did some things like, what is this? Like sketch out some lines here for us. Like what sure. was the council of Trent about? Like how did the Catholic church respond to all this stuff? Like clearly they must've thought the Protestant reformers were wrong, that they were heretics. Mm-hmm. Like Martin mm-hmm. Luther was excommunicated. Right. Very bad for right. him. Right. Um, but what, what, like what happened? Well, I think that that's a really good question. And I, I often wonder what it would have been like to be an upper level Roman Catholic leader in this time period, because it must've just felt like the world was just a, a, a just crazy place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1500s is where, where we are um, moving toward the middle parts of the 1500s. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so if you think about like how churches respond now, if you've, if you've been in a church that is facing some sort of threat, internal or external, mm-hmm. what do they do? There's lots of different things that people try to do. Um, they might try to um, discipline the particular person. So like excommunicating somebody who has bad, I- that what you see of as threatening or bad ideas, like mm-hmm. what happened with Martin Luther. Or you might try um, shoring up some part of yourself. Mm-hmm. Like what is happening, you know, in response to whatever, like, bad behavior or dangerous behavior you see is on the outside. Um, and one of the things that you might try to do is, is shore up your theology and your teaching around key issues. Yeah. Like clarify, like, look, this all happened. Let's really get back to what's important here. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the, the potential problems facing, um, Roman Catholics in leadership in this period, especially was that, uh, a lot of people thought that Martin Luther, who was himself a devout, like he was basically an intellectual star in the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and he did some damage in terms of there were lots of people who thought he had a point. In fact, right. and what students will will probably remember that um, in the lecture a couple of weeks ago, I talked about he was repeating ideas that other Roman Catholics had said before, right. like right. Erasmus. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the the Council of Trent was basically, I think we can interpret it as a way of um, Roman Catholic leadership trying to, to figure out like, we need a version of ourselves that is, is a positive, like version of ourselves for the future. So we need to address some of the issues that came up from reformers and within and outside the Roman Catholic church, Mm -hmm. um, and figure out, okay, well, who are we? And what are, what are our teachings about things like, what is the Bible? (laughs) What is the authority of the scriptures? Because the, the Protestants, man, they kept hammering at that, um, the scriptures. And really, I think we can interpret this time, um, as like, this is what happens when people can start widely reading and interpreting the scriptures Mm -hmm. in a way that they hadn't really been able to before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the council of Trent, as you mentioned, it's a long time. You could, (laughs) you there were probably people who started and finished their careers <laughs> there. Right. Um, and, uh, and it was a big attempt to figure out like, who are we as a Roman Catholic church? And one thing that's interesting about this is that um, it was almost like it was hundreds of years later mm-hmm. before the Roman Catholic church called another one. Mm-hmm. So we can interpret their work as 
being effective in, in a lot of ways at, you know, figuring out like, how do we stabilize and promote yeah. the church into the future? Well, you know, from the Bible perspective, which I try to drag in. If yes, I can, please do. Reminding us like this idea, like the, like, for instance, this idea that's, I think, just part of the basic catechism of the Catholic Church, the teaching, is that uh, coming out of the Council of Trent, um, is that the church, scripture scripture has an interpreter that is the church, that is mm. the Roman Catholic mm-hmm. Church. Mm-hmm. And so the Bible and the church's tradition, which is, you know, what Catholic faith is, yes. are they're they're both equally authoritative, but they're independently authoritative in different ways. Mm. Like mm-hmm. that's, and that would be like a big beef for reformers. Oh, for sure. Like that's, that's right? a big one. And that's, and that's a genuine, I don't think we should, I think we've done, I think you and I, and, and neither of us are Catholics. I think we've, we have tried at points to like look outside of ourselves and our tradition and sure. be like, wow, like the richness of the Catholic tradition is like totally legit and undeniable. That's my opinion as a Christian, mm-hmm. even though I'm not Catholic, but like we've never, oh, students wanted to, you know, paper over or deny or just play kumbaya in like a simple way with right. the idea that Catholics and Protestants really have some different ideas about some things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, it's like navigating faith, especially like if you were new to faith and you're like, Hmm, should I be a Catholic or a Protestant? Like, I don't know. And then like, what kind, like there'd be some serious things that you'd have to really like work out in prayer and suffering mm-hmm. to figure, you know, to figure <laughs> this out. Yeah. I think that, you know, the arguments, especially cause for Protestants, you're 1000% right. Right. Like it, it, it comes down to the scriptures. Um, some of Martin Luther's famous, uh, or not just Martin Luther, like the, the reform efforts um, are famous for saying scripture alone, sola scriptura. Right. And um, and the oftentimes the Roman Catholic response to that is, how do we even know or have scripture outside right. of tradition, right? And so that right. that tension is oh, just yeah. constant. Phil, it's, a, it's like a deep philosophical problem it too. Really if is. you say to yourself, there's an infallible text. There's a text that is divine and perfect. But what's the? There's a problem though, which I think is 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 difficult. And Protestants have ways of answering it. I'm just pointing sure, to the Catholic sure. answer, which is like you have to have some bridge over though from the perfect knowledge, the, the the perfect thing to perfect knowledge of that thing. How do you then, if you don't posit an inspired interpreter, mm-hmm. which the Catholic Church then defines as the Church, mm-hmm. as the tradition. Mm-hmm how are you getting the results then? What you would maybe get is like, you know, the the kind of like, the, the cliche would be like four Baptist churches on a street corner. Which totally right. happens in places. For different I remember, ones, right? yeah, yeah, there's, um. so I, my husband and I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for a long time and they always joke that that's the, buckle of the Bible belt. Right. Other people have said that about other places too, but Nashville's got to be up there. Missouri, Missouri claimed to be the buckle of the okay, Bible belt right. as well, where I, I lived for six years, but I would guess a lot of buckles. It's like a multi-buckle yeah, belt. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like it's a, a new kind mod of mod clothing, but uh, seven or eight buckles. <laughs> I would guess though that both of those places, because Springfield, Missouri and Nashville, Tennessee have got to be like, they have to duke it out for the churches on the corner. And that's, that's yeah. a critique of of Protestantism that is is based in this idea of biblical interpretation, right? Because, mm. and different um, Protestants have mu- a rich traditions of riffing on that idea of like, how how do you interpret the Bible? What's the role of the Holy Spirit? What's the role of the individual believer? Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to get to 
Wesley, who's really influenced George Fox. And there's there are lots of like really excellent, well thought out theologies mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're talking about uh, Roman Catholics and the renewal movements within uh, Roman Catholicism, and they have a lot of different. Um, different takes on the role of tradition right. in the church and right. the individual believers experience as well. Okay. There are some, there are some names. I mean, it, yes. you know, this was a very famous period in, in the development of the Catholic church mm-hmm. in terms of, of this, you know, you might call it a counter reformation or something like that. And just a lot of like rich things going on. Like for instance, Catholics, Oh, by the way, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, putting the Bible in the hand, in the vernacular. However, yes. the Catholic church did their own translation in the vernacular beginning at this time as well. So, um, there are lots of things going on. Um, I'm wondering though about some characters. These are like names I know, but I don't always know about them. What I what I would want to know, like yeah, like 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 the Jesuits or Ignatius yes. of Loyola or Saint John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, like who uh, Avila Avila of Avila. I don't even know how to say their names. Like, but there <laughs> there's some I don't know. There's so many names here and so many individual figures yes. we could talk about who participated in the the blossoming and the change and the movement of the Catholic Church during this time period. I wonder if you'd pick a few of your favorites, even oh, overlapping yes. with, say, the list I just gave you. <laughs> you know, I like to think about the reform era or the early modern era geographically. So, like, you've got different things happening in different parts of the world. So, we've got the the um, renewal or the, the reformer people, like, in Germany and mm-hmm. in Switzerland. And then you've got, like, the... Uh, English people having their own little island conversation going on. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's like a tropical island yeah. They're just out there having their island conversation. Yeah. But then in like the Catholic stronghold parts of Europe, um, France, Spain, um, Italy, Portugal, you've got a lot of other things going on. And, and a couple of my favorites come from Spain and that is uh, Teresa of Avila and, mm. um, and her mentee, John of the Cross and their response to the modern era, um, a lot of historians interpret as being really formative, like uh, concentrating on innovative ways of encountering the spirit of God Mm -hmm. um, through uh, a formational process, through really deliberate prayer, through art, poetry. Um, So Teresa of Avila is um, we're going to read a a prayer for her or prayer by her. Mm -hmm. Um, But she was um, a reformer in her own right. So Mm. one of the things that we talked about last, I think a a couple of weeks ago was that monastic orders tend to have a cycle of, of establishment and then reform as Mm. if there are members of, of particular orders that think that they, their organization has strayed too far from mm-hmm. the really lofty goals that monastic life mm-hmm. um, professes, like you know, poverty and uh, care for the sick and the sure. and the diseased and all that kind of stuff. So Teresa of Avila um, worked very hard to reform a uh, um, an order that she was a part of, uh, the Carmelite order, and her uh, mentee John of the Cross did as well. And uh, Saint John of the Cross wrote a beautiful poem that I bet you love mm-hmm. called Dark Night of the Soul. Oh, Dark Have Night you, of the Soul. That seems like a Brian Doak poem if oh, I've ever <laughs> It's it's a fave. Heard of it. Yeah. And if um, and, and even if and even if nobody even if you didn't know anything else about St. John, John of the Cross, you do know about that phrase Dark Night of the Soul which true to the poem you know, would, would signify a time in the life, it's a, a, a piece of, a time in the life of a Christian when you feel like really like maybe God has abandoned you. And yes. there, there is, by the way, students, I just want to put out this one. I feel inspired to just please, say this please. one thing. 
there is a deep, long history in Christian spirituality of like just lament and like really dealing with it when you feel lost and abandoned by God. Um, Mother Teresa, famous character, yes. was found after her death, had a lot of writings where she felt that she experienced this abandonment mm-hmm. by God. How could you feel abandoned by God? Like, you know, St. John of the Cross, like people have gone through this. And so, yes. um, you know, I guess maybe maybe Dr. Payne mentions me along with that just because sometimes in my own spirituality, like I, because of my own, I guess maybe just personality need for for honesty and for transparency. I just, you know, I f- it's not as though I feel like God like is like playing games with me or abandoning me, but just a, f- a feeling of like em- spiritual emptiness of just darkness of like, what is this? You know, like we all have different temptations and some people as Christians really never feel that way mm-hmm. and bless them for that. And they have other problems, you know, but this is like one of my struggles, like, and it's just, so people have, people have gone there. People have done this in the history of spirituality and you can do it not as a sin against faith. You do it within faith. Yes. That's yes. the idea. Yeah. I, and I think, and I hope you don't mind me even bringing your personal taste. No, into go for the, it. No, go. But I really think because one of the, I mean, students, if you ever ask Dr. Doak how he's doing, he'll just tell you for real. Like, you don't have to (laughs) worry about that. And that kind of, like, raw honesty and angst and frustration, like, you can bring that into the life of prayer. Totally. And if you're looking for, like, someone who's – you want to go there with somebody, a brilliant poet – then I recommend Mm -hmm. reading Dark Night of the Soul. It's it's, um, written in Spanish – uh, because as I mentioned, these folks are from Spain and it is, um, one of the cool, the reason why I think it's fun to think about and to bring up as well is that it's art that created theology. So yes. a lot of times we can think of, especially if you come from a Protestant tradition where it's like theology first, and then yeah. you create art that's responding to Th- the theology. That represents it, right. Yeah. But Dark Knight of the Soul is this beautiful epic poem. Um, John of the Cross is like Shakespeare in Spain mm. and he's just this iconic poet and um so and then he wrote about the poem like he wrote theology responding to the poem so so you've got these figures you know like in spain italy portugal man this sounds Mm -hmm. like a roll call place i want to travel why am i trapped in my house wait also really important one yeah ignatius of loyola oh yeah talk about him yeah who was a soldier um and who had who had a terrible injury and then he had this extraordinary visionary experience and decided to enter monastic life and he created an order called the society of jesus um or the jesuits otherwise known as the Mm -hmm. jesuits and the one of the reasons why i think he's really important to bring up right now well there are a couple of reasons um the jesuits were a missions movement so Mm -hmm. they went they were a part of the this broader effort to Christianize the world. Mm-hmm. And that really is a mixed bag. So the Jesuits, their legacy, um, many people see them as courageous missionaries, which they many of them were. Mm-hmm. Others see them as agents of the co- bigger colonial effort. So there were some Jesuits who participated in some pretty terrible acts of violence against people you mean who they had to, not European. They traveled to other places, like even to what we now call North America. Exactly, and yeah. There are yeah. some things that went down there. That were a, a part of a really shameful history between like Europeans and indigenous people. But it's complicated, right? Because not like literally everyone was doing that, but it was in some case, like that's, oh, it's, so right. gro- it's so gross and so complicated. It, I think, I think, you know, we have to bring that up in the same way that we had to bring up um, parts of Martin Luther's life and work right. that um, that were a part of just right. you know the sinful world right. that we live in. Anti-Semitic aspects of of, of his Martin Luther. Yeah, thinking. nobody. The lesson, many lessons here, but one of them includes like 
you're not going to find a perfect person in the the history of Christianity. So the Jesuits were really influential um, responders to the modern world because mm-hmm. they went out yep. um, and they established a ton of universities. Mm-hmm. So a lot of American universities that are Catholic have Jesuit um, roots right. and also our current Pope, uh, Pope Francis is the first Jesuit right. um, Pope, which was a really big deal because in in Catholic time, mm-hmm. that's a young movement compared to, yeah. a lot of, <laughs> you know, yeah. much older, like oh, the totally. Benedictines, for example, are much older. So there, Ignatius is a really important yeah. figure in this time. So hopefully students are getting the idea that this was like a lively time in oh. Roman Catholicism. Lots of stuff was going on. Right in my backyard growing up, one of the colleges I applied to was Marquette University. Really? Jesuit. Okay. And I actually okay. spent my first two years at, my, at university. I transferred. I was a transfer student, but my first two years I did at a Franciscan university. Oh, you did? Called Cardinal Stritch. Yeah. So Franciscans were a group that, you know, that is earlier, that is not mm-hmm. part of this. But mm-hmm. anyway, you get the sense, right, that Catholicism is actually a diverse thing where they're there's a lot of diversity that thrives in Catholicism through this idea of orders or different mm-hmm. like ways of like embodying the faith. Yeah. And they have like, there's, they have disagreements and um, like different ideas on how yeah. to respond to the world, just like um, Protestants do. Totally. Like if, you know, use the example of Baptists, they, they get in arguments. <laughs> well, Baptists so. are famous for, for splitting, you know, from each other. I, right. I grew up in a, when I was a small child, my family was Baptist. So I will claim the right to there make a little go. joke about Baptists. The, the, the idea of like four or five Baptist churches within like sight of each other <laughs> is a common, you know, totally, idea. totally. We'll get to them. Soon. Reminds but. me of the famous Protestant joke, which is the joke against Protestants is to say there was a, there was a guy, that, you know, this guy uh, got stuck on a desert island and some people discovered him and he was overjoyed. Uh-huh. But, you know, uh, they were about to bring him out and, they, you know, they saw his little palm tree there and they saw his little house, but they saw a building that looked like a church. And so they they said to him, well, what's that building there? It looks like a church. He's like, oh, that's a church. He's like, I'm a Baptist, by the way. Didn't you know that? And he's like, no, we didn't know. He's like, oh, that's my church I go to. And they're like, oh, that's cool. They're like, wait, like a hundred feet away, there's another building. Does that look like a church? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, they're like, well, what's that? They're like, yeah, that's the Baptist church I would never go to. <laughs> You need one. You need one. You need, always need one. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Okay, wait. Before we go, yep. we need to pray. We need pray to pray with Teresa. We need to do our reading. And what is our text for this week? Um, this is a prayer, a very famous prayer by Teresa of Avila that feels appropriate for where we are in the semester. Mm-hmm. And um, I mentioned it in the the lecture this week, and we thought that you might like to pray with us, oh, students. It's really short too. I can read it already. It looks beautiful. Should we? Do you think we should read it maybe twice? Let's do that for sure. Maybe what if you read it once or I'll read it once and then you read it. I love that. And then we'll, that'll be our sign off for the week. Okay. Let's do it. Are we going to talk about it or are we just going to read it? Let's just let the students think through it, experience it themselves. Okay. So we're going to read, I'll read it once and then you read it and that's our sign off. Yep. Okay. Teresa of Avila's uh, prayer. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God 
alone suffices. 